have one of the sheets from the back table. Okay. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Genesis 25. Starting in verse 1, uh, touched on some of the complicated issues with this this morning. What were, what were your thoughts as you looked at this verse and you thought about where we are in the story of Abraham and what has just taken place with the death of Sarah and the marriage of Isaac? Should Abraham have taken another wife? Day one. Okay. It's lawful. Alright. So by the things that are later laid out in Scripture, <coughs> what is, what are the, when would be an appropriate time for a man to take a wife? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, he's not already married. So, um, the circumstance with Hagar, God clearly says, you did this on your own, this wasn't the right way, right? Um, what about the question of did Abraham need more children? No. Right. So some people have said, well, the dominion mandate and fill the earth and all this sort of thing, same command was kind of given to Noah, refill the earth. But there is dispute among theologians on this. But there's probably not the same urgency with that at this point in history as there was when it's Noah one of eight people on, on the earth, right? Uh, or when it's Adam and Eve and no other people on the earth, right? And so uh, I don't know that it would have necessarily been Abraham, even though he had a lot of kids, necessarily Abraham feeling like I'm fulfilling the dominion mandate by myself. Um, did he, by taking another wife, potentially, uh, was there potentially a threat to Isaac's inheritance? Maybe. Maybe. Just, and again, so I think what we're going to find is we walk through Genesis and, and other sections of the Bible, and I'm sure you found as you've studied the Bible in the past, it's not always clear cut. There are some things that the narrator or that the author of a particular book makes very clear. This is right, this is wrong. And there are other things where I wouldn't say it's up for interpretation, but it's less clear. It's something we have to wrestle with. And think through. I think this is, this is one of those. Issues. All right, not spending too much time on that point. It's not the main point. Uh, regardless of your answer to number one, did Abraham agree with God about who deserved the inheritance? And how do we know from his actions? Look at verses five and six. Okay. Yeah. So he, he he clearly gives the inheritance to Isaac. He does give things to the sons of his concubines. But he, he sends them away, so he's making clear, Isaac is the one, he's my heir, and, and I think he's agreeing with God on that one. Yes? So that brings up, I think, a follow-up question to the first question, because it says uh, her name, and then it says, almost uh, looking back, concubines, right? So, you know, would we say that, would we, can we, uh, Make the, the leap that um, marrying Torah was wrong. I don't think we can say that. But the fact that he had concubines, that's where we would probably say that is not right. Yeah, and then 
mentioned, I think it's First Chronicles 3.1. I don't know if that came up in any of the cross-references that you all looked at. Um, Keturah is mentioned there as a concubine of Abraham. So it could be the two concubines are Keturah and Hagar, and he's saying during the course of while he's still living, the, they and their offspring were similar to them, uh, or particularly their sons. Um, so that's one possibility. John? So in the sense that God prefers us and commands us to limit ourselves to sexual relations with one woman, yes. since he had a concubine, yeah. I mean, yeah. then in that basis he should be married to her, or right. at least had, a, had another concubine or whatever you want to call it. Right. So, with regard to that, um, yeah, even though it was a commonly accepted practice for Abraham to do what he did with Hagar, taking her as kind of a wife, but not of equal status to Sarah because she was a slave. Uh, clearly God's pattern is laid out in Genesis, one woman, one woman, four life. That's God's design plan. In a fallen world, in this culture, it does not seem as though God condoned it. It does seem as though God's attitude toward it, how do I put this? He had patience with Abraham and others without saying what they were doing was right. And when it comes to law, when it comes to what Jesus says, Jesus clarifies and says, you know, this is what was the, the way things were supposed to be. And you, by your attitude toward divorce, for example, in what the Pharisees taught, some of them, have devalued marriage in much the same way that Abraham and the early patriarchs did by taking multiple wives. We'll see in the life of Jacob, who becomes Israel, the conflicts that are in his family because of that pattern of marriage, interrelationship, you know, all those sorts of things. And so I, I don't think it would be an unqualified um, everything was okay with Abraham because, like you're saying, there's this plural use of concubine. Even if it means Hagar and Keturah, it reminds us of his earlier failure to trust God. And so, yeah, you definitely should trust him. Yes? One follow-up I just thought of. Hagar was sent away. Right. So if and we consider that that was not a divorce, and therefore he could take it to <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's not worded in a formal sense. It's more like God says, Sarah's right, she needs to go. Um, there are parallels, though, to the way that that's, that language is used later on. So it's not good. Though. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a messy situation. But Ishmael comes back and is part of burying Abraham with Isaac, so it wasn't like Hagar was totally yeah. away. Right, right, right. He wasn't part of his household, but that is the best way to understand it, not that they were going to bring any further contact. Any other further thoughts on this? There's important truths about marriage here. It's not the main point of the passage, but it's worth discussing. Okay. Well, I'm Right. And it caused them no end of trouble, you know? So, uh, yeah. Right. Number three. What's the sign that Isaac is the true heir? How does this fit with the major theme of the book of Genesis? Okay. Maybe one of the kids remembers from last week. What did we say was one of the big themes of the book of Genesis? Looking for Caitlin at age 15 at the moment. 
Bible makes it on a number of occasions. When there is some issue that we are struggling with, what's our first response? We got to pray. We don't know. Good. Um, number five is, I threw this one in there just because it was interesting. I don't have a firm opinion one way or the other. I just wanted to bring it before you. Are there any parallels between the struggle, the struggle of Jacob and Esau and the struggle of Eve and the serpent? Let me 
um, this idea of her approaching God and Isaac praying regularly and all those sorts of things, there tended to be, it seemed, them having a habit of communicating with God, which tends, at least in the context of the Christian marriage today, tends to be a closeness in communicating with one another about spiritual things if you're doing it on your own. But it's possible that that's not 100% involved. Because later on, we're going to find out that we've got to hope we told mine with And that's a good point, too. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good point in others, I guess. One interesting thing to me, comparing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is we have the least amount of information about Isaac, and yet he seemed to be the most godly of the three. Yeah. He started out there. <laughs> yeah, and, and even later on, the... I don't want to say the sins that he did weren't a big deal. The sins that he had, that he committed, or the unwise choices that he made are understandable. He knows, eventually, God has said he's going to bless this son and not the other son. There's probably something to be said about the measure of his blindness, physically, and perhaps a measure of spiritual blindness. Maybe there's something going on there. I mean, we see that later on at the, the kind of the seminars that they were talking about this idea. One of the passages we looked at, Eli growing physically blind. The narrator says there wasn't any visions from God. I mean, there's a pretty clear effect in that passage. Possibly something in the game of life as well. But yeah, I mean, at least in this initial chapter, there seems to be, for the most part, a real commitment to God and improvement over Abraham. Definitely better than how Jacob starts out in terms of this life. Let's move on for sake of time to these two application questions. We looked at how we participate in God's blessing through Abraham last week. How are we able to participate in God's blessing through Abraham as Christians today? Through whom? Through Jesus. Okay? Do we also receive an inheritance like the descendants of Abraham? When I say like, not is it the same kind of inheritance, that's the next part of the question, but do we receive an inheritance? They receive an inheritance. Is there at least that basic parallel? Yeah. So what's the same and what's different between the inheritance that we as Christians receive and the inheritance that Abraham's descendants receive, at least in the second yeah. To be Abraham's descendants, you just had to be born from his family. Okay. Whereas to be children of God, for us to receive that inheritance, there has to be a change of heart and spirit. We have to be born in the gospel. So I'm just saying, there is that. Like, I'm saying it, it was, I mean, it was a physical, physical family versus a spiritual, a spiritual family. family. Right, right. Okay. I wanted to touch on that point, because that's one of the points of, when I was thinking through the application here, is, would we say that the inheritance, and I agree with everything you're saying, uh, would we say that the inheritance connected with Abraham was strictly a physical, temporal sort of blessing, and the inheritance we receive is strictly a spiritual, something we can't touch kind of a blessing? No. I think there's a There is so. Okay. What are spiritual elements in the inheritance that Esau rejected? Yeah, I mean, if he's the one who's going to be the one talking to God and sort of leading his family toward these promises that God has given, and he's like, forget that, I want nothing to do with it, there's definitely a spiritual component that he's casting off. And in 
nowadays, we tend to think like heaven, we're going to inherit heaven, and because we can't see heaven, we tend to think of it as a, like a not, not a physical thing. But, um, and there's complicated stuff with our views of end times and all that sort of thing, but the kingdom, when, when Jesus talks about the kingdom, I think at least at some point we have to argue he's not just talking about like God rules in everybody's hearts, right? There's actually coming a physical kingdom, either the millennial kingdom or the eternal kingdom, in which people are going to be walking around on a new, in a new heavens and a new earth in bodies. And so I just the, the point that I'm making is we don't want to draw too hard a line between the inheritance that Abraham's family received and the inheritance that we receive, one, because they're connected through Abraham, through Christ. Both of us receive it for that reason. And then secondly, because even though this one was more focused on the physical, it has spiritual components. Even though ours is more focused on the spiritual, it also has physical components. Does that make sense? And, and I would say that even if we separated not just physical and spiritual, but temporal and eternal, okay. then we have to look at it, too, that we do have temporal blessing. I mean, to be saved, to have a relationship, to have that communion with God in this life is a great blessing. So I think that's where there's definitely that temporal blessing as well. And, and again, I'm not saying they're exactly the same. What I, the, the point that I'm trying to make, though, is that um, because Paul makes the parallel between the blessings of Abraham and the person of Christ, there's a sense in which they are looking forward to an eternal blessing in the way that we are both looking back and looking forward to an eternal blessing. And so for those who genuinely were part of Abraham's line and knew God, they are going to participate in an eternal inheritance. So, I mean, I don't know if that clears it up as, as well. It, again, the main focus, and I think this is sometimes where Abraham and his descendants went wrong, the main focus tended to be on, you know what? we're going to end up in this land or we're going to have this child and sometimes they would just look at like this narrow segment of it I don't have this child right now I don't have this land right now the blessing that's been promised maybe I don't see right at the moment and we have the benefit of seeing the whole span of things and so from that respect uh, it's definitely a different perspective on what's going on but yeah I mean it, w it, it was more temporal at least initially, but it's also tied into what God's doing eternally. So, um, and one of the challenges of this is you start in Genesis, you're looking forward to the whole rest of the Bible. You start in Revelation, you're looking back on the whole rest of the Bible. So there's all of these different things that could be brought in just for sake of time. It's hard to, hard to know where to stop. Um, what are I, I feel like we've answered this question pretty well. Does anyone have anyone else to add to the move on here?
So we can come back to it if we need to. Well, let's go on to number two. This idea of the threats to your inheritance. And I didn't really develop this this morning, but I want us to turn over to Matthew 4. I want us to contrast Esau and Jesus. Who would like to read Matthew 4, 1 through 11 for us? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Pause there for one second. Do we see any parallels between either the scripture passage that Jesus quotes or the temptation and the circumstance that Esau finds himself in? What's the parallels? They are hungry. What do they want? They want food. They want bread. And what should have been the higher priority? What was the higher priority for Jesus and what should have been the higher priority for Esau? God's words. Now again, we have the question of did Esau know God's words? And was he then using those as an excuse to do what he shouldn't do? But there is this parallel, I think. Okay, keep reading. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came. Is there a parallel between the middle temptation and our passage with the accountability of Esau? This idea of putting God to the test. Probably comes down to how much Esau knew. If he's, if he's approaching it as, God, you're going to do what you said you're going to do, in spite of what I do, or because of what I do, that would be an attitude of putting God to the test. Well, we don't know that, so it would be a little speculative for us to say. I think there's a parallel to the last one, though, right? And this is where the, this is the one that I think really connects it for me. What was Satan offering Jesus? What's our key word from this section? Blessing or inheritance. You can have it now. And you can skip the cross. All you've got to do is worship. Are there any parallels between that with Jacob and Esau, this with Christ, and things that we have to question ourselves on? Yeah, because Esau wanted it now instead of waiting to receive it later. Christ said, no, I'm not going to take it now. I'm going to go through the cross. And then there's this question for us. We have many things promised to us but the path of getting there is not a path of immediately getting what we want. We 
which then I think brings us back to this thing with Esau. Are we going to give up eternal blessings, spiritually valuable things, for things that we just want in the moment? So what are some examples of things that we might want in the moment? And again, going back to what I said this morning, I'm not saying we can lose our salvation. I'm not saying all those sorts of things, but there's this, this ought to weigh heavy on us because if we take sin lightly, we may end up falling away from the faith because we don't belong to God, or we may end up straying from the faith for a time, doing damage to ourselves and others, and so these warnings ought to kind of rest heavy on us as we look at this passage. So what are some things that we might want right this moment, or maybe later on in life, we want them right then, that would be a threat or a danger to our relationship with God and the blessing God has promised to us. Us to do. 
trusting God, examining our hearts, lots of things that are spiritually profitable. And so I'm not saying we should go out of our way. Hey, I see that person is really sick. I want to come over here and catch it from them. So I have an opportunity for spiritual reflection. But if God puts us in that point, being sick, having someone you love sick, especially for an extended period of time, will test your faith and cause you to examine truths about God. And we don't want to be in it. But it does accomplish good purposes, even if it is a bad thing. And so, um, yeah. So we have, again have that question of the here and now versus eternal inheritance. What is this doing for that role versus my immediate desire to be out of this circumstance? So the question of getting out of sickness, of desiring money, desiring possessions, what's going on? Yeah. Relationships. Well, I mean, I think as a teenage boy, I really wanted a relationship that would not be appropriate for a man unless they were of age and married and all that. So I think that that's a big driving force, whether you're younger or older, wanting a physical relationship with a, another person that is not. Okay. Plan. And, and with regard to that, told you some Category, category that with pleasure, pleasure to reflection. Yeah. That's one aspect of it. Category and it takes different forms, right? For some people, it is, I want a relationship with another person because their attention feels good, or it's exciting when I hold their hand, or whatever else. There's a variety of directions we could go with that. Sometimes it's, I want physical satisfaction, like I'm hungry. So how might that work out in a similar way with Esau? If I say, you know, people will say things like this. I'm a monster before I have my coffee. <laughs> I don't say it because I don't drink coffee. And I don't have any excuse for monster. But um, we say that jokingly, but it sometimes reveals more about our hearts than what. Same thing, you know, Sunday, you're coming home, it's time for lunch. What tends to happen? Start to get a little cranky with each other eventually, right? Do I have an excuse in that circumstance because it feels good and I'm hungry and I want this thing to say something unkind to someone else in my family? No. Again, one of those questions that comes up, right now gratification versus eternal inheritance. Where's the other ones?